Okay, let's get on with what we're doing. Um, We've decided, after speaking to some of our theological experts around the place, to not go with Galatians, as Jonathan and I had thought for a time, but to go to John's Gospel. I have spent a little bit of time in John's Gospel over the summer, but not during my holiday time, and I am looking forward to it. Whether you discern this morning that we've started John's Gospel or not will be up to you, because we come also to communion And it's an introduction of sorts, Um, so let's see where we go. It's been an interesting week. Jim Wallace being here was very exciting. And for Jonathan and I to be able to take him to, well, Jonathan more than me, who am I to be trying to take any credit for uh, the road management of Jim this week, but uh, to Skinos and to 174 on Thursday morning was interesting. And the politicians that were there and the people that went away with Jim's book, it, it was fascinating to see that impact. And some of this morning maybe comes out of that, but it was started long before um, Wednesday night. I had a hunch a long while back, and I have various hunches, and most of them are very worrying. Most of them, considering I'm from Balamina, make me think that actually I am the heretic that so many people think that I am. And I linger with them for a time, wrestling with them in the scriptures and thinking... I really think this is right. But you're always encouraged when you think something might be that you're not just getting commoner garden in Northern Ireland evangelicalism when other people theologize it for you. And you go, at least there's a few of us that are heretics. For me, one of those such things was the self-indulgence of our salvation in the culture that we are in in an evangelical Northern Ireland world. The self-indulgence. The night I came to faith, I think God came in long before this, that moment when I was six and a half and I made a decision that God didn't exist. The subversiveness of how God gets in is interesting because probably if that moment hadn't happened, We wouldn't have got as far as 1979 when one night I looked up at the stars and thought they just happened or there's something behind them. There's something behind them's interested in my life. Goodness, if there is a God, it would be good to have that on your side. Think the life I could have if the power that created the universe was available to me. There was a certain self-indulgence. A note, in my 17-year-old life, I wasn't even thinking that I would get a place in heaven as a result of it. For me, it was just about now. God is better than alcohol. I used to preach it. I remember being in a little church in Antrim. No, first where I was assistant. I was doing a mission, as I did, endlessly. And I said this, I said, now tonight I want you to think, what is there in the whole world that could be better than having the God that created the universe right in the center of your life? Is there anything more incredible than that? So afterwards, this little guy came up to me, he was about 10, 11, he was smaller than me, which is not tall, and he looked up at me, which not many people do in more ways than one, and... um, And he said to me, I know. And I said, tell me. 
He said, six cans of Budweiser beer. I said, it's an interesting thought. So I'll tell you what we should do. Let's put six cans of Budweiser beer over in that corner. Just leave them there for a while and see what they can create. I thought I won that one. If he did, they're still sitting there, I presume. Which is probably better than him having drunk them because that would have created something that really we don't want to even think about just now. That was the thing. It was, I have come that you might have life and life in all its fullness and boy did I want that life and boy did I want that life in all its fullness and it was all about me. What I was getting out of the deal. And it's there in our chapter this morning. It was that which I testified about Mo Blake's life around. I have come that you might have life and have it in all its fullness. But it's in the middle of something, as so often are the verses in the scriptures that sometimes we don't recognize. Not only is it in the middle of chapter 10, but it comes after chapter 9. And what we find here is that in chapter 9, Jesus has gone and healed a guy who was blind, happened to do it on the Sabbath, and literally all hell breaks loose. You can't be healed. I think I am. I can see. No, 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 no. You really can't be because how could he do that? And he did it on the Sabbath, so it can't have happened. I'm sorry, but I can see you. And suddenly this guy's put in this place where the Pharisees are saying, no, 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 this guy's out and he's not one. And he, he did, but there's no way that this is good. This must be what is going on here. And so coming into chapter 10, Jesus talks about shepherds, Pharisee shepherds. He is a shepherd. Who we listen to, how we listen to, where we might find life in all its fullness. That we might realize that the sheep pen that so many are in is actually not a good sheep pen. And that those Pharisees might not be too dependable. And that he is one that's dependable. And we need to be discerning as to who the voice we're listening to is. And that he is the shepherd. And that he opens the pen for the sheep. The gate right through. And then the sheep follow him. And then... I lay down my life for the sheep. So what we have here is a shepherd. Immediately the Jews are thinking, David, Psalm 23. Jesus is being linked in John's gospel with Israel, with the whole story of exodus and salvation, kingship. And that the sheep will follow the right shepherd and that's good and that you will have a life and life in all its fullness but I'm going to lay down my life for the sheep so if you follow me it's not going to be about your self-indulgence it's going to be about your self-sacrifice that's not what the world wants to hear our mission statements to the world are not good It's not a really good TV ad. 
You want life in all its fullness? Give up everything. It's not what they're wanting. It's not really what they're wanting. But the Gospel of John, which we're going to come to over the next while, tells us the story of a counterculture Messiah who embodies a subversive wisdom and that through his death and his resurrection drives out the very rulers of the world. It's not self-indulgent. It's self-sacrificial. And it's not about me. It's about transforming the world. It has an impact on Syria. And as Janet has just prayed, we have the audacity and the right to talk to the father that we have an intimately personal relationship with about Syria and everything else because everything else is involved in this gospel, not just me. And so this morning, the good news of the way of the cross. One of the commentators, and I've read many, and there's many more arriving in the post every day on John, a variety of stuff that's um, coming at me from all kinds of different directions. People have been saying to me, oh, you need to read that. Oh, that's a great book on it. Oh, and you should think about this one. I too take all of that, and I spend the money that the taxman doesn't get um, on those such things. One of the commentators said, we should allow ourselves on a regular basis to be struck anew by the thick, rich, multi-layered nature of these four documents, the Gospels. So full of vivid human scenes, but so evocative in the resonance of the meaning about the world, God, life, and death, and pretty much everything else. So for a while, let us allow ourselves on a weekly basis to be struck anew by these stories of Jesus that are about the world. God, life, and death, and everything else. Jim Wallace declared boldly this week. We heard him three times. It was similar but different mixes. But at one stage, certainly I think in Skianos he said, the atonement-only gospel is not biblical. The atonement-only gospel is not biblical. That was my hunch, you see. Because my gospel that I was understanding for a long time was that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, atoned for my sins. I had a personal relationship with Jesus. And really, what happened outside of that, yes, we could dabble in it, but it wasn't really what we were all about. It was about me getting to heaven. Before or during, just as I started this series, I told you this over the summer when I, I preached in July before I went away. Um, I've been reading a couple of commentaries in John and my friend Alan Emerson, who was at Regent at the time, said to me, uh, I must have been blogging about it or doing something about it, and Alan says, have you read how God became king by N.T. Wright? And I said, it's on my list. He says, well, get right into it because it's exactly what you're talking about from John's gospel. So I did. And it untangled so much of those hunches. The self-indulgent hunch, the fact that it was just about atonement hunch, was wrong and that there had to be something more. N.T. Wright starts that book by saying, 
It has been dawning on me over many years that there is a fundamental problem deep at the heart of Christian faith and practice as I have known them. This problem can be summarized quite easily. We have forgotten what the four Gospels are about. We have forgotten what the four Gospels are about. We'll be looking at John, but no doubt we will bring some of the others in as we go. Scott McKnight um, at the Bible College a few years ago, and N.T. Wright in this book, How God Became King, have theologized a lot of my hunch. As I said in the summer, Wright believes that these are the four things that are most crucial about the gospel. Jesus as the fulfillment of the vocation of Israel, shepherd, issues with the Pharisees, how he dealt with the Sabbath law, Jesus as the fulfillment of the vocation of Israel, Jesus as God's presence, the word became flesh. John is very high as a gospel in Christology, in Jesus' divinity. But right there at the start, the word, divinity, becomes flesh and moves into the neighborhood. So right says, Jesus is God's presence as Messiah. The launch of God's renewed people, those of this sheep pen. I need to go to other sheep pens and draw them in. Jesus is doing something in the Gospels where he's starting a whole new sense of the community of God. What it will look like, who it will be. They will hear my voice, they will come in. I lay down my life for the sheep and they will follow me as they lay down their lives. For what? The fourth point, the clash of the kingdoms. Caesar versus God. Caesar versus God. Who are we going to follow? John's Gospel, some commentators have pointed out, may have been written to a couple of kinds of people. I'm just going to name a few kinds of people. I'll name a couple of them today. This new community that N.T. Wright says that we're going to create, it's certainly deep in its... its, um, and it's search for those people and to try and feed them, feed their souls for the battle, the clash of the kingdoms. Chapters 13 to 17 that will eventually come to these words of Jesus praying not only for those who believe around him, but for those who will believe afar off. There's a lot in John's gospel that seems to be for this new community, this renewed community of his people. Then there's also... Some have said, I thought it was an interesting thing, and the more I've looked at it, the more I think, those in the fence. Chapter 3, Nicodemus. Later, Joseph of Arimathea. Secret disciples. Or maybe even that guy in chapter 9. He's been healed, but everything around him says, that's wrong, that shouldn't have happened, that guy's of the devil, that guy's not of us. The Pharisees are trying to... He might have been on the fence. He came after Jesus. Interestingly, it's really late in the chapter before Jesus reveals who he is to him. But he wants to know. Commentators would say that John, there's an evangelistic. But not just an evangelistic. It's even those of us this morning. Here in Fitzroy. Where we like this Jesus thing. But the church and some of the issues. And the contemporary culture saying that's outdated. And the contemporary culture saying look at the abuse that the church has been. And the contemporary culture. And we're sitting and we're thinking. Do I want to commit? I don't know that I want to commit to this. John's gospel may be written. For the Nicodemuses. How can I get it? 
Joseph of Arimathea's or the blind man in the chapter before or the Samaritan woman who hears that and then has to make a decision. What kind of commitment to this shepherd will we have? It's a Judean audience. They say the commentators, Ephesus in the late first century, which takes me back to that thing that I go on and on and on and on about. That this is subversive text for a people who Caesar is beating down on them because Caesar's the one who's the saviour of the world. Caesar is the son of God. Caesar is the one who wipes away sins. Caesar is the shepherd of the people. And John's saying, no, there's an alternative. Unseen, because it's not what they're seeing around them. But if we look unseen, there's something else going on. There's something else happening. There's another kingdom happening. Subversive poetry to a people needing to constantly reimagine the unseen realities. Which takes us back to where I started. How do we find life in all its fullness? Where is life in all its fullness? What's the empire saying? What does Caesar say? What does the shepherd say that we should be listening to? Whoever loses his life will gain it. The good news is the subversive way of the cross. This is all about transformation. We're not saying, because in Northern Ireland, as I keep saying, you've got to say what you don't say as well as what you do say, that there's no atonement. No, 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 you missed it. Atonement only. When we come here today, believe me, there's a personal dynamic going on because as we eat this bread and as we drink this wine, we are being cleansed and forgiven and reborn yet again. And we are being fed and nourished by God in these elements. Me, personally, I'm being given through these elements life and life in all its fullness. And that's crucial to world transformation. Jim didn't say this week, but he said to my students away back, he left the church and he was an activist that could call tens of thousands onto the streets of America in the late 60s to campaign against the Vietnam War. And he'd been out of it for a while and he realized something was missing. God. The life of Jesus, the cross of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. He said constantly in his three talks this last week, It will not be just the church that transforms the culture, but if the church is not in on the transforming of the culture, it's less likely to happen. So as I get cleansed and fed, personally, almost self-indulgently, if you want to take it that way, poetically, more is happening at this table today. We are declaring that this is for the transformation of the world. We are declaring that there is a battle going on between Caesar and God. And this table declares who the winner is. Where the victory is. We are declaring that as Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. And we remember that together. That we will go out the doors. Some at the back but most probably after coffee out here. To follow To self-sacrifice. Because the message of this is. That if we want life in all its fullness this week. Then we're going to have to give up. Our lives. And lay them on the altar.
to be broken and poured out. Because my salvation is in order not that I would have salvation just, but that I would become part of this renewed community that would be involved in the clash of Caesar versus God. And that somehow, by renewing my individual life, I could become a part of this community and the wider Christian community as we transform the entire world. So Fitzroy, not only as we start another series, and I did warn you, might not have much to do with John today, but I think it had. What about us for the start of the year? As we come to this table at the start of a church year, although some people have told me Advent's the start of the church year, I take a Balamina liturgical, known understanding of liturgical season's approach. Start of a school year. Start of, there's just so much where we start in September. As we pray for you all as particles of light, in education, in law, in commerce, in all the different places that this week our particles of light will go to, can I ask you to take hold of the good news of the subversive way of this table and the cross and recommit in this bread and this wine to not live an atonement-only, self-indulgent salvation, but to live a world-redeemed, transformed vision of God and put yourself into the clash between Caesar and God.